Mercedes Krauss. I am the executive editor at Curbed. I am an Angeleno, two years strong. Before that, I lived in New York for a decade, but I will never lose my Texan identity. I'm born and raised in Texas. And yeah, I have a 13-month-old son and a wonderful partner named Ryan. Will you explain more about what you do at Curbed? Sure. So as executive editor, I basically take our editorial vision and what we are trying to do and I make it into reality. So I work with all of our editors and sometimes our writers to yeah, work on specific stories, to work on editorial projects, to ask people what they're seeing, what they think is interesting, what matters and why. All of our staff are really interested in cities and homes and architecture and real estate. So it's pretty easy actually to come up with a bunch of great ideas. And then it's like, okay, how should we tell the story? You know, who have we got? And these days that is a a more strange project for several different reasons. Uh, The first reason was coronavirus started happening and everybody started covering what was happening to cities because of it. And, you know, construction stopped and all of that. So a bunch of the things that we covered changed. And so we kind of started adjusting there. And then we had a bit of a a shakeup at Curb. There, half of our team was furloughed. Media, as you have probably read, is having quite a tough time. And so we did not go unscathed. But there's a, a plus side out of that story, which is that we are being moved under New York Magazine. So we're going to become a vertical like, you know, the cut or vulture strategist. So we're undergoing a big editorial transformation right now. And then you have police brutality back in the news and the murder of Black Americans. And all of a sudden, it feels like nothing matters. Does real estate matter? Do homes matter? Do lifestyle? Any of that? And of course, a bunch of it does, right? Like racism really plays out in basically every part of how we live. So the stories that we're doing now and the things that we're talking about are kind of changing day to day, just like all of our thoughts and understanding of the world is changing day to day. So it's a strange time to be a journalist and to work in news, even if it's half of that news is more on the lifestyle end. Yeah. So Maybe it's a cool opportunity to, if you're moving under a new entity, is there maybe an opportunity to like restart the way you do things? Like, oh, we need to make sure we're being more inclusive. Yeah. Do you think Mercedes, you guys will take the opportunity to like redefine how you run curbed or how you have done things in the past versus how you'll do them in the future? That's a very good question. And I think, yes, I will say I'm, I'm quite proud of the curb staff. And I think among our peer publications, we have pushed harder in the last few years than some of the rest of our peers. And I only mean that to say, I'm excited that we get to go deeper and ask ourselves harder questions about the kinds of coverage we should be doing. So for example, I feel like, you know, it's so easy to talk in vague terms about these things, but for example, our urbanism editor, she's also a critic based here in Los Angeles, Alyssa Walker, 
I'm watching her thinking about how she thinks about what her job is, about criticizing the conversation around urbanism and what people are doing and what policy is being made and all of that. I'm watching her quickly go from talking about empty policies into very quickly just saying, how do we build anti-racist cities? And she has been pulling out some of her old stories and revisiting her takes on things. And then I know a couple of staff had pulled out older stories that we had written about prison design or police station design. I don't actually know that we did prison design, but they've been pulling out an older story about police station design and kind of, you know, trumpeting a particular architect's project that a lot of people got on board trumpeting. And, you know, you look at that last week and it's like, wow, we never want to write about police stations ever again. And I got asked, can we just make a protocol where we don't write about police stations or prisons ever again? And I said, yeah, I don't see why not. (laughs) You know, this moment just feels like there's no more time for hesitation. There's just no more like, we don't even, we don't need to dance around it. Like this is wrong. We know it's wrong. Let's stop. And that feels great. Frankly, it feels great to feel like our institutions are changing and the even the company that we work within, and now we're kind of like inside a company, inside a company. Vox Media owned Curbed and bought New York Magazine. This probably your listeners may not care about this, but acquired rather, acquired New York Magazine like nine months ago. And when the Curbed cuts happened, it was basically like, wow, Curbed would be great under New York Magazine, but it's just too big the way that it is. And so it would need to be trimmed down in order to like work which I think was a a great business decision, even if it was an utterly heartbreaking team decision. You know, I guess that's what businesses or capitalism, I don't know, there's there's probably something to say there, but it's not really my my place. Um, Yeah, I think it's so hard even thinking of Curbed as like a house itself or like any businesses, like it's your home, you want it to feel a certain way and you want it to stand for certain things. And I bet it is hard to like, yeah, have built a home and then all of a sudden be like, oh, we need it to be half the size. Right, right. It is. It's strange. Anyway, that was kind of a tangent about the decisions that we make and how we're how we're thinking about. I truly cannot remember how I got there, but um, no, no, I think I was um, I mean, Curbed is such a platform. It's such an entity. And I was if you're taking this time to shift um, just how you can personally be like, okay, this is what's topical right now. And this is what we're going to no longer stand for. This is what we're going to cover. And I don't know, just, I think a lot of companies and individuals are taking a hard look at how they've lived and how racism has been a part of their life or taking more into consideration. And then just looking at the the future world and being like, this is the role we want to play in making sure that's a good place. Yeah. And I think for me, I have been, you know, charged with taking care of the curb team for a few years now. And, you know, management is a big part of my job. And no matter the size of the team, one thing I have come to understand is how crucial actually thinking about the product that you make as first the people who make it and the team that we have and the things that we can make with the team that we have in the community that we have, obviously like freelancers are part of our team to some degree, 
But when I look at our staff right now and our staff makeup, we currently do not have any black staffers. And that is quite difficult for me. I had hired one that was furloughed and another one left for a different career path. It has become very clear to me the hurdles that people of color, particularly black people, but all people of color face in the workplace. I have spoken specifically to people about microaggressions. I think there are a lot of white leaders who want to change their organizations, but don't quite understand the work involved in creating fertile places for people of color to work and creating supportive places. What I have learned is that non-white people in the workplace do not feel like they can be themselves. They don't feel like they can speak up without punishment. And that's, you know, very learned in like how folks are treated, the opportunities they're given. And I, I take it very seriously that the power that I hold as a manager and a team leader requires a great deal of responsibility. And in fact, it requires constant vigilance, really, about how much I am aware of the power dynamics. It has been a real lesson for me to understand that I have to overthink about power dynamics in order to get it right. And I would say the same is true of race and racism. I have to overthink. I have to constantly be vigilant about racism in our team and our coverage and everything in order to just get it right. And I think that that's what power does and, you know, white supremacy. I mean, that's the, that's the definition. It's, it's, you know, white power. And that's not the phrase that we tend to use, but white supremacy is just like powerful entrenched whiteness. And so I'm not going to say that I like get it right every time because I certainly don't, but I do understand. I take very seriously the power that I have, the platform that I have, you know, the way that I lead curbed, the things that we cover, the way that I support or don't support people, the way that I say like, yes, take time off, or do you have too much on your plate? Or, you know, how are you doing? For me, I'm always like, a lot of what I also believe in is like, just like humanity, treating each other. Mm -hmm. How do we treat each other as, as human beings? Mm -hmm. And to understand that a white person's experience is going to be different from a non-white person's experience and like that our humanity actually has to be expansive and we have to understand in the definition of treating people humanely day to day. And, but also at work is like, you know, in the same way that you have empathy when you have understanding, it's like, it requires, okay, this person has like a sick mother or this person has, you know, childcare demands or whatever kind of things come up and be like, this person suffers from racism, (laughs) you know, like to be able to take that step, you know, take it a step further and like be able to hold that as a manager who is trying to care for and support a team and to see how that might be affecting people and to get ahead, you know, like get ahead in those thoughts is like humanity is different for everyone. And Yes, white people do suffer under racism in a different way, right? But like they don't suffer the direct consequences of racism. Like, for instance, black people do who are being murdered at 
rates way above statistically how things would fall out based on population size. So it's that and then right. And then it is, I do really feel like it's something that I have crystallized in the last, I would say six months is really understanding that phrase with great power comes great responsibility. I think a lot of stuff that's fucked up about our society and how we work is people not understanding their power. I think that that's like, you know, you look at me too stuff and people who are like, I was just doing this thing. And like men who just like did not understand the power that they held and the influence that they held and treated it so carelessly that it just, they were like, I'm like somebody else and I don't have any power in this situation. So I'm just going to flirt with this person or I'm going to like make a pass at this person or whatever sexually harass. I mean, you know, all levels, my God, but it has become very crucial to me to understand that power and to understand what I need to do about it. And really it becomes, it does become a great responsibility to live every day like that and try to hold that in your mind and be like, I am not the same as everybody else. Actually, actually I do hold hiring and firing power. Actually I do hold, you know, the power of this platform. Actually I do hold the power of whatever, you know, like thousand Instagram followers or whatever I have, you know, like, just to understand it. I like what you're saying because it's not only enough to like understand and then empathize. I think like acknowledging. So like taking it that step further, which I actually like, thank you for opening my eyes. I think it is important to do. And because you may understand, oh, this person is going through this situation or you may understand, oh, I have this certain amount of power, but to actually acknowledge that, I guess that's, what we're all missing and what we need to do a better job of is, is saying like, I understand you're under these stressors or there are these constraints that society has placed on us, like, or you for that matter, like, and I'm here. And then I, 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 we can actively figure this out together because maybe if you don't acknowledge, it just leaves room to assume. And that's how a lot of shitty situations happen anyways. So for sure, you know, my style I didn't really expect to talk about management so much, although no, I know I was like, I want to get into all the homes and studios, but I mean, I think we had, we have to acknowledge and yeah, (laughs) we have to acknowledge. So, right. Right. Yeah. So it's top of mind. So when you ask about revisiting and stuff, I'm like, yeah. And there's so many layers. It's like, it's not just in our coverage. And even though I think we've done a commendable job of covering things over the years and looking at racism, absolutely. We can do more. Absolutely. We should do more. I'm excited about what that looks like. I'm excited to take the awakening and understanding that I'm experiencing and that I know everybody is experiencing right now and really put it into thoughtful action. What are the things we need to see? What are the things we need to understand? Who are the people who like have voices that we have never listened to before? You know, because like our networks are mostly white or the establishment, you know, the architecture established mostly is mostly white or whatever. That's something, I mean, in terms of editorial, like I pulled out two books that I've been looking through lately and they're just like white as hell. (laughs) And I struggle with that. Even as I love beautiful spaces, you know, I'm also like, right. Nothing is just, you know, it is the myth of whiteness that things are neutral. And so when I look at who is in these books and the objects that are in these books, one of them being Donald Judd's spaces, I'm having all of these questions too. And I'm you know, it's not just like, what would it mean to abolish the police and what do cities look like under that? Although that is certainly a question. 
it is also why does Donald Judd have this Northwestern tribal totem in the loft of one of his Marfa homes in this photo? And how am I examining looting, cultural appropriation, and all the various things that, you know, we get, we have all these like cute terms for instead of looting, it's like, oh, I found this thing, you know, in this other place and I took it. And like white people are like, that's cool. I put it in a museum. And the people who are from there are like, no, fuck you, man. Like you just took our, you know, right. Or probably like sacred totem. Anyway, I, I just am looking at all of these things again and again, and I just, I can't not see it, you know, and it, that's been increasing for a few years, but in this moment that we're talking, (laughs) it's like, I definitely cannot not see it. Yeah. Um, I think as a culture and society, we're really bad at asking questions. And I think everyone is taking more time to reflect, like, mm -hmm. what am I surrounding myself with? How do I, you know, what are my own actions saying and doing? And yeah, I think everyone is right you should ask questions. Like you should walk around wondering how did this get there? Where was it before it was here? And being a little bit more like at least curious or not taking this thing and this, not this other thing, you know, even going from like, why do I think this thing is ugly or like uh, something goes from being like ugly to being like ugly, cool, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. why is that, you know, that's, not allowed universally though. You know, I think, right. That's what I mean. Like this kind of myth of neutrality is like, why could a scrunchie go from being ugly to ugly cool? Okay. So what, what I want to get to here is that I'm really interested in this project by this guy, Gerald Cooper. It's called hood mid century modern. And Gerald is fascinating person was the manager of young guru. Who's like, a top audio engineer and decided to start his own design firm and is doing a bunch of different kinds of projects like using design in the most loose and expansive sense. And so he started this project called Hoodman Century Modern. And it's so rad because they're just posting photos right now. It's an Instagram account, but they've got all other kinds of plans and we're, we're going to cover it on curb. So you'll see it in the next few months. But the Instagram account is great because you just see modernism, but you see modernism in the hood. And it's like, why is like Rudolf Schindler house cool? And this other house like, isn't cool. Or is that like ugly cool? And what does it mean for something to be in the hood and like be cool and have value? And anyway, that is like that kind of question and thinking that gets me then further into like, basically Gerald and the hood mid-century people want to use that account and use that platform to start asking those questions and being like, this also is valuable. This also is mid-century modern. And, you know, Black people have felt so, have been so disenfranchised from housing for so long through redlining and racial covenants and my God, the list goes on. And so a lot of Black folks like don't feel invested in domestic architecture because why the hell would they? They don't have any, you know, like if you can't own a house and you can't do something to it, like why would you get invested in that thing? So Gerald is out to basically elevate mid-century modern and just like architecture generally in like black communities in order to be like, hey, you should care about this. And like, hey, you should care about having a home. And like black people should buy homes. You know, there's since the Fair Housing Act, uh, which I think was 1967, basically like black homeownership levels have basically stayed the same. 
and that's like 60 years ago. And real estate and housing and owning a home is still the number one tool for building generational wealth. So like, guess what? If you don't have more black homeowners, and in fact, I think there might be fewer, then like, how are you building generational wealth? So like, it's just, it's like all tied into this stuff. And what I think is rad as hell about hood mid-century modern is that it's like, it takes that very like policy and structural issue into the aesthetic space where folks can like get into the aesthetics of domestic architecture, of mid-century architecture, of mid-century design, of whatever like local vernacular, you know, that they they may have wherever they live and like be able to start investing themselves in something that <laughs> that they haven't been able to because of like various like racial barriers. So well that'll be brilliant. It'll be like tour the Schindler house and this hood. And then all of a sudden the hood's property values go up. And then all of a sudden maybe a community of people who have never owned homes can like, or uh, I don't know, that could like push people out actually, but it would be, I like thinking about how we could change value. And I think even the scrunchie analogy is just so good because it's like, what does it mean to have something trend? And I mean, curb basically, you know, can flock people you can determine which culture is relevant at what time. So I think it is, it would be so interesting. I, I'll have to like look that up. And it, I think the table should ch- turn a little bit and have people go down a bit of a different history lane. And that's, I mean, that's one thing that like black people are very good. It is so cool. Black people are very good at being like, here is our culture. It is rad as hell. We're elevating ourselves. And like, that is something I have long admired. And I, I think is so rad. Like, you know, nearly all of music, <laughs> all of contemporary music is like owed a great debt to black people. Mm-hmm. Right? So like uh, what I think is cool about their approach here is like, it follows in that tradition to just be like, here's our stuff. It's awesome. We're making it awesome. It doesn't matter the institutional barriers that we're up against. Like we are going to elevate this and thus ourselves. And like, yeah, to me, that's rad as hell. And it's, it's a cool in a deeper way that I love just like questioning what aesthetic values matter, you know, and like who says, who decides, who are the cultural arbiters? It's something Ryan and I talked about a lot when we moved to Los Angeles is that like in New York, it feels so much like, you know, who the cultural gatekeepers are. And in Los Angeles, it's like, there are no gatekeepers (laughs) and things feel like more free flowing. And it means that like things are diffuse and dispersed and like you know, the scenes here are like kind of ragtag, you know, and in New York, like they have power to influence because they're, they're institutionalized scenes that have gatekeepers and all of that. But like, it's fascinating being here on the flip side where everything feels like you could just figure some shit out and you don't have to ask anybody's permission. You don't have to get anybody's approval. And like, I could actually lead into some interiors from there. (laughs) (laughs) This book that I'm obsessed with right now is called Freestyle by Tim Street Porter. And it's the subtitle is The New Architecture and Design from Los Angeles. And it came out, I think, in 1988. It's got an introduction by Pilar Viladas, who's a famous design writer, and Paul Goldberger, when he was still at the Times. But man, it is the coolest shit. What I learned about Los Angeles architecture in the 1980s, when like Tom Main and Morphosis and Peter Shire, Eric Owen Moss, 
all those people were, were coming up here who were kind of like, you know, there's the book that's like the LA 10, but like people who started Cyarch and started like turning shit on its head here, starting with Frank Gehry, obviously, but he was even like kind of the uncle of the scene really. But like, basically these folks just kind of like took totally different references than, than other people were taking. So like, it's kind of like in the idea of modern, of postmodernism, like let's undo some shit and just like make weird references and make weird architecture out of, you know, whatever. But like, where's what I read specifically in here is that like, where's on the East coast, all of that had to do with like traditional vernacular on the West coast. It like, they were kind of like referencing Los Angeles and also referencing graphic design, which is rad as hell. I mean, Peter Shire himself was a like associated with Memphis and he did a bunch of stuff here. And then I'm trying to find specifically who I want to tell you about. All right. Graphic designer April Griman moved to Los Angeles in 1975 and her work became synonymous with the graphics movement of the late 1970s known as the LA new wave. So she right was like super well known for her time. And basically like she has her own interior style (laughs) and like, She's got this room, y'all, that in some apartment she had, she had some like ugly carpet because, you know, this is like the 80s. And so like everybody had carpet. And so she covered the carpet with raw canvas, this like golden raw canvas, and then had basically like a golden bed and all the walls were golden and, you know, created this like desert environment is what she called it. Anyway, it's just really rad to learn about this like really cool aesthetic tradition in Los Angeles, which is just pretty off the wall. And it makes me feel, (laughs) it makes me feel like I can do anything. Like I can just do some wild shit. And in New York, I remember feeling, I I didn't mentally feel restricted. I definitely felt like, but it felt like I was watching other people do cool stuff. And there was, whether it was graphic design or whether it was a restaurant or an interior, it was like, oh, these people do this cool stuff and they set this stuff up and here's how it is and everything is in this style. And then in Los Angeles, I'm like, wow, if you are like playing within the bounds of a scene, you're like almost less interesting to me. Like I would way rather see totally wild and weird shit and I expect to see it here. And that feels very exciting to me. (laughs) I love that way of being. I I definitely think there's something to, you know, like I was saying, like being in a scene and being in a, established aesthetic crew. And I think that there's a lot of power in that in the same way that, right, in New York, there's a lot of power in being together and unifying around a certain thing that you're really tweaking on and you do this thing. And here, like, shit is wild. And I think that's I think that's part of the reason that, like, L.A. interiors and architecture is both so exciting, but probably why it isn't, yeah, it's just not as monolithic as things are in New York. And, like, right, that has its that creates freedom. And it also means that it's like much harder to get your head around. And so like when something is harder to understand, like Los Angeles, the city itself, then it's less easy to like monetize or create something out of or whatever, you know, it's like, anyway, that is like a whole tangent into my feelings about really everything about what I found in Los Angeles, both in terms of the city and in terms of the scenes and in terms of the actual work that gets made here. Yeah. Does your own home look different in LA than it did in New York? I definitely have been doing weirder stuff here. Although we were always trying to push the boundaries in New York. We have, um, (laughs) I don't know, Rachel, if it was still around or how quickly they repainted it. But one of our friends 
took over our old apartment and we had like a one level of a of a brownstone in Bedsty, and the middle room didn't have any windows and so instead of like trying to paint it white and make it lighter or whatever we were like okay let's do a color and ryan my partner was like let's do red <laughs> and so there's this like corvette red in the middle room of that apartment and like look i don't think it was fully successful <laughs> <laughs> It had the, the um, dots are still there. You had painted like these moldings, multicolored. Yeah. Though right. that's like my favorite part of that spot. Yes, yes. So we were trying, we were trying to start doing stuff, and then here when I moved in, when we moved in, I was. It actually, you know, that apartment was so beautiful. This is another like LA, New York thing, and not universally, but like you know, you move into a brownstone, it's like, wow, the molding. And we had these gorgeous floors and a cool light fixture and like a super weird kitchen and whatever. It was just like a really interesting place. Big windows, huge window, like molding and frames and all of this stuff. And so like, I barely had to touch the apartment to make it feel great and interesting and beautiful. And then we moved into this place in Los Angeles. And like, it's, it's frankly, like hard to find stuff here. You know, there's a housing crisis in all of California. And we found a place that like, you know, met enough of our requirements, but we moved in and I was like, Oh my God, this place is just a series of white boxes. Like, thank God there's a wood floor, but it's just like every room is a white box. And like, what are we going to do about this? And I was just so <laughs> mad for a long time. And so I had been looking at, I wrote an entire newsletter about this. Actually, I had found this ceramic milking stool from coming soon, New York. And it had this like bright blue, like kind of painterly wash on it in like stripes around it. And I just loved that effect. And so I was like, I wonder if I could do that. So I found a bright blue and I like basically washed on this paint. I, I like searched forever for like a DIY on how to do it. And eventually I was like, mm, I'm just going to have to do it myself. So I painted this whole, like two walls, this whole corner, this like bright blue wash. And that changed everything. <laughs> it was so nice to have like something kind of wild on the walls. And I've just done piece by piece adding more weirdness. So, you know, I, you know, I don't know if that's like part of it is just like the sun and the modern squares, modern, not in the cool way and the like overly simple way, you know? Yeah. Like stucco boxes kind of thing. How do you make a more interesting space when like your window frames are like the literal most basic, you know, and there's no molding and there's. Yeah. It's like, how do you inject culture into an Ikea? Like it's. <laughs> yeah. Super white box. But you can, you know, and like I found this like weirdo light fixture on Cherish and picked it up locally and installed that over the dining room table. I got a dining room table for $200 at a flea market here and kind of forced Ryan actually to like sand all the chairs so it didn't look so Jennifer furniture and looked a little bit more like <laughs> authentic mission, but it's still like pretty Jennifer furniture. And I'm a big thrifter. And so I... Yeah, we'll just like pick up weird shit all over the place. Like I'm staring at this quilt that's above our bed right now because you can't have anything above your bed that isn't soft because earthquakes. And it just strikes me as like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat meets checks is like what it is. <laughs> it's so weird, but I love it. And I don't know, A, I don't know if I could have found a lot of these things in New York and B, I don't know if I would have been challenged or inspired to like mess with them so much. I feel like in New York, the city is so exciting and thrilling that like you want your home to be 
calm. And I think there's like a minimalism that I was always pretty happy to have in New York that in LA, I, I'm just like, let's, let's go ham on most of these spaces. Like I want things to feel really lived in and alive and, you know, but that could just be like part of my own, my own trajectory, my own life. But it definitely is where I am right now. I mean, I've been, I've been pattern mixing for as long as I can remember and like, and trying to get more and more bold and it really is just like, you know, I don't own any place yet. So not every single surface yet is covered in my home. But like, you know, maybe someday everything will be hand painted and <laughs> messed Dream. with. These are my same dreams. <laughs> I was wondering, speaking of trajectory, Mercedes, my main question for you was like, what was your like first, I'm, I'm not sure if you had one, but like gateway or foray into like for many people, it's like, architecture, design, homes and studios, tours. It is like full circle Donald Judd, but like, can you remember your first set of like special places that you went to? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I'm going to give you some weird answers. So (laughs) one is my mom loved Pier 1 and I know it's closing and we may be writing something about it, TBD, if anybody has time or brain space to do that right now. So I went to Pier 1 a lot as a kid, and it was one of those that was like, you know, in the mall parking lot, but like separate, so it felt fancy. And I think just starting to like look at homewares and go there, and she she often went for like the candles, but I think that was one thing. And then also my dad, my dad is an interesting one because he's an entrepreneur. Ooh, we have a lot of similarities. He's an entrepreneur, so he really has like a business mind. And I would say I'm similar in that way, but he has always been drawn to creative projects. And so he has built furniture. He had a whole like carving phase. And the last year he's been doing stained glass. He's just kind of all over the place. And he went to architecture school for a while. And as a kid, I remember going to his office and like he worked on a drafting table. So he, he has a a millwork company. And when I was a kid, you know, he just called it like a cabinet shop, but he was still designing cabinets and countertops and right architectural woodwork for a bunch of different people, meaning like could be like a bank or could be like a retail space or whatever. So I was kind of welcomed into that world early on. And because of that, you know, he had all of these, like his own kind of design references. I remember a green and green book from when I was young. And I remember seeing like this weird pedestal that he designed and built. And like, so I learned a lot. I th- I think I just kind of like got attached to that. And so, right. He, he was doing that. And my mom, I remember pier one. And then also like, we got the pottery barn catalog and, you know, my mom has always been like a like her aesthetic is very much like the gap and like kind of minimal, but like she doesn't try. It's like kind of like classic American minimal. She never really tries that hard. And she always like seems comfortable, but like put together. And I think that our home was that same way. And so I think I just like, you know, picked up a lot of that probably from both of them. And so by the time I got to college, my two college roommates were both artists And then I went like deeper down the wormhole, you know, of like everything. And even though I was in journalism school, I started to take design classes. And like my first job out of college actually was as a graphic designer. So I really have like been between 
the aesthetic world and the written world for a long time. Cause I also like, I started yearbook club in like middle school and I was my high school yearbook editor in chief. So like, I was really interested. Oh, I'll tell you an interesting story about architecture actually, which is that I thought that I wanted to be an architect. And so my dad introduced me to this architect that he worked with and had me like, you know, went to like tour the office and whatever and just kind of like talk about it. And he basically was like, don't be an architect and discouraged me from doing it. And maybe that was a test or I don't know, but I, so I didn't do it. And like, it's weird how I think we all have things in our lives like this, but it's like, what would my life have been like had I gone to architecture school, you know? And like, I have ended up being in design and architecture in so many ways, but just in this kind of adjacency. And anyway, yeah. So my story is kind of strange. I think it was kind of piecemeal. And then just the more I got into things, I got, I got deeper into urbanism, frankly, from traveling internationally. And I lived in London for six months. And before that I had lived in Monterey, Mexico for three months. And I just got really into like how cities worked. And so I started working in an urbanism nonprofit and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, then you get into urbanism and that's tied to architecture. And then I got deeper back into architecture and I had had graphic design and whatever. So, you know, then you just put it all together. And then like Ryan is hugely enthusiastic about art. And so now it's like, how many things can I go to? You know, and I used to write about music. It's like kind of so many things, you know, once you get into the creative world, it's like, you just go deeper and deeper. You know, I'm like, maybe I'll have a theater moment someday in my future. For now, it's mostly like aesthetic stuff and primarily interiors. I just, I don't know what it is about interiors. I love tactility. I love creating comfortable spaces. I love looking through a design book. I love visiting homes. I think a lot of people do though. I, I, what's great about Curbed is that I think a lot of people do. And I think that's why Curbed is so cool and so interesting is because it's not, you know, like I see in Curbed my own story, like the interest in cities and making cities better and wanting to know how these big mechanisms work and structures and stuff. And then also like, yeah, and I also want to like see this home. And I also want to know like, who is this designer? And like, I can't wait to get the Donald Judd Spaces book. And it really like spans a lot of disciplines in a way that I think is really cool. And I think a lot of people are into. Yeah. Do you have any um, favorite homes and studios of artists that you visited? Hmm. I mean, Judd's spaces were very influential for me. First, his artworks, truthfully. I didn't visit his any of his domestic or office spaces until later. But I think, you know, obviously there's like a through line through all of that. Other places that I've visited. Hmm. I wasn't ready for that question. It's kind of a... <laughs> well, there, and I know it's like, it's like there are plenty. <laughs> there are plenty, like all along the journey, you know, like when I went to the glass house that had its own level of like mind blowing also because of this kind of like, legend and then you get there and you're like wow this place is so small (laughs) what i actually thought was interesting in the glass house was the the art bunker and then the like you know whole sculpture building you know there are like six or whatever buildings on that property yeah it's it's just i think been been bit by bit i don't know that i guess i just feel like i have a ravenous appetite and so i don't i can't think of favorite spaces a lot of the spaces that i've seen are modern. And, you know, I guess that's, we just have the most access to that. And I like modern spaces 
but it's weird. I don't want to go on too much of a tangent. It's weird. Like I'm really interested in modern spaces and sometimes also I get really bored by them, especially the like mid-century jewels or time capsules or whatever. I'm like, this is cool, but like, let's shake some shit up, you know? But again, that's probably like my own, my own kind of thing. But like, for instance, when I was looking at this freestyle book, when you look at the house that Frank Gehry made, that first house that he made for himself, which is, you know, just such an icon. I have never been in it. Most people have never been in it. But when I look at photographs, I'm like, how does this space work? How do you go from like going inside a house and then like you go inside the house again? Or you could kind of go down a hallway that takes you into a room that's inside. And like, I don't know. I I guess at this point in my life, I'm just really intrigued and excited by just tr- truly wild shit. <laughs> that sounds amazing. All right. I have one more question. I saw that a few years ago you made a quiz and the headline is which iconic chair are you (laughs) and i love that but i'm so curious to hear what chair you are oh wow uh you remember i tried taking it but i couldn't get through so i don't i'm not fully sure yeah i think the quiz that we built that on like probably doesn't work anymore that was a that was a hard one to do god what chair am i the truthfully i I don't think I can answer this because I just love too many chairs. (laughs) I have this Milo Bauman that I way underbid. I'm a ace haggler negotiator at flea markets and I got for very cheap. And I didn't even realize it was a Milo Bauman until afterward, but this like beautiful blush armchair And I love that chair. And then I also love, we have these really strange outdoor chairs that are cast iron and they have triangular shaped seats. And then they have like a round armrest thing. And below the round of the back is like a little circle and that's the backrest and the circle like floats in space. And it has the effect that it like kind of looks like an abstract slice of pizza when you look at it from like, you know, kind of an angle, like when you're standing and I'm obsessed with that. Like, I think that's so weird, (laughs) but then I also love our like basic ass hammock because my God, what a delight to like lay in some fabric outside. So I probably just need to commit to like, I don't have one moment to moment. It changes, you know, definitely year to year. A project that I've been in conversation with some colleagues for a long time and that I nearly started to bite off when I was doing this editor's notes newsletter in the spring is around asking questions about basically like, is your folk art racist or is your Shibori pillowcase racist? Is your figurine racist? And like (laughs) truly starting to explore some of those really sticky questions that probably actually don't have answers, but that I think the, the questioning is the, Point. And I'm trying to figure out right now, can I, not can I do that, but when and how am I going to do that? And yeah, I think there's just like, nobody's really taken on those questions and I want to take on those questions. So hopefully yeah. I can do this summer. I think that something like that would take a tremendous amount of research, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and right. Like research, you know, and be like, right. What is colonialism when you take items and what is But then also just to hear from a bunch of people whose aesthetic opinions I respect, you know, and have them weigh in, like, 
how do you see X kind of figurative thing? And if you see a, you know, an item of artwork that looks like a Tahitian mask and you're a, you know, you come from a Pacific Island people, what, you know, whether you were born there or born in America, like, how do you read that in someone's home? And what does that feel like? And I think it's just like, it's just a part of examining whiteness and it's examining colonialism. And yeah, I think, <laughs> I don't know that there's, yeah, I don't think there's going to be an answer, but I think the the questioning is the point is like, can we be considered about what aesthetic references we use and the ones that we feel comfortable owning, you know, because we know that like white people generally feel like the world is their oyster and not everybody else feels that way. And so what does it look like to just ask the question, like, is this for me? Should I have this? You know, and whatever the answer comes to is like, I think it's still an important thing to look around our homes and ask ourselves, ourselves those questions. And for me as a, like, I love folk art and I, you know, I have a poster of Shiva and Parvati that I got in India framed in my like breakfast nook office area. And like, I question again and again, what it means for me to have that, you know, and I bought it at a shop. Sure. You know, it's not like I stole it from anybody or whatever, but anyway, I just, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time and am constantly feeling more urgency to explore. And yeah, I'm constantly feeling more urgency to explore. So I want to, and I want to say it out loud so that I will figure out how to do it and figure out how to get my teeth around it. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's a plug for an idea that maybe by the time this comes out will be in progress or, you know, I don't know, but um, I want to say things out loud so that people will hold me to them. You know, I want to say like, I want to do better. I want to try to answer. I want to try to ask really hard questions so that people will be like, why didn't you ask that really hard question? <laughs> Okay, well, I'll just tweet at you every day until you've started on that project <laughs> and you can share updates that way. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mercedes. And Judd is the cutest thing. Thank you. He is the cutest thing. Thank you. You made a good one. Oh, man. I love that kid, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>